0: Our episodes deal with serious and often distressing incidents and may not be suitable for children. If you struggle with addiction, feel depressed or have suicidal thoughts and you need support, please contact your local crisis centre or reach out to a friend to ask for help. The last ten months of Scott Wyland's life spiralling out of control he suffered one setback after another, including his mum's cancer diagnosis, severe financial troubles, mental illness and his third marriage was falling apart. His downward spiral continued to gain speed when his guitarist, Jeremy Brown, died of a drug overdose one day before his new band, The Wildabouts About's album release on March 31st, 2015. His wife, Jamie Wyland acknowledged that her husband was drinking heavily before he left on his last tour but he promised her that he would get his life together and finally get sober. She accompanied him on the Worldabouts tour for a week in November, and said that Scott was just killing it on stage, every night taking it up a notch. However, just one week later, in Bloomington, Minnesota, Wyland's manager would find Scott dead of an accidental overdose on his tour bus from a toxic mix of drugs. Join us on a supernatural journey, as we tour Scott Weiland's roller coaster ride to rockstar fame, we explore the mystical facts and investigate the final 10 months leading up to his tragic death. This is Death by Misadventure.
1: was born on October 27, 1967, in Santa Clara, California, under the zodiac sign of Scorpio. Scott was only two years old when his parents, Sharon and Kent Klein, split after only four years of marriage. His mom remarried the following year, and Scott took the last name of his stepfather, Dave Wylan, an aeronautical engineer. After a job promotion, his new stepfather moved the family to Ohio, At the age of four, his parents welcomed a new baby boy named Michael, and Scott was officially a big brother. Scott was a sensitive soul, and he relied on his imagination and would like to pretend he was Camelot or some other character in one of his fantasy tales after school. However, his teacher said he was smart but hyper, and the doctor later diagnosed him with ADD. But his mother refused to give him medication for it, and continued to nurture his creative side. During the summer, he would go to California to visit his dad, Kent. His father had remarried, and he had a new stepbrother named Craig. The two became fast friends, but tragedy would strike a few years later, when Craig died after he was hit by a car. Scott was devastated, and he would later say his relationship with his biological father was never the same. At a young age, his talent for singing shined and he joined the school choir, but the trauma of his childhood emerged at the age of 12 when he was sexually assaulted by a high school student, a dark secret he would hide from his family and friends until years later. When he turned 14, Wyland's family moved to Huntington Beach, California, where he attended Edison High School. He was well-liked. And became a standout athlete. He loved sports and played football, volleyball, soccer, and even joined the wrestling team. Music took center stage in his life and he started his first band. They played local gigs all over Southern California, but he soon fell victim to the rock and roll lifestyle of constant partying and his grades suffered. Wyland's reckless behavior eventually led to a short stint in rehab after his parents found drugs in his room. The big turning point in his life was when he met bassist Robert DeLeo. How the two actually met is disputed. One story claims Weiland and DeLeo met at a Black Flag concert in Long Beach, California in 1985. They began discussing their girlfriends, only to realize they were dating the same chick. But instead of letting this come between them, they dumped the girl and formed a band instead. But Weiland's autobiography tells a different story. He wrote the guitarist Corey Hickok, and drummer David Allen pursued Robert after watching him play at various gigs around town. The first story is a little more colorful, but either way, it led the four new friends to form the band, Mighty Joe Young. Mighty Joe Young played several gigs in the San Diego area, building up a solid fan base, and later was the opening act for Henry Rollins at the Whiskey A Go Go. While in the studio recording their debut album with Brendan O'Brien, they received a call from their lawyer that they would have to change the name of their band due to the fact a bluesman already owned the trademark to Mighty Joe Young. The band had to come up with a new name and were inspired by the STP motor oil stickers that they were fans of as kids. They began playing around with the initials STP. They came up with a few unusual band names, Shirley Temple's Pussy and Stereo Temple Pirates. They eventually settled on the name Stone Temple Pilots. On September 29th, 1992, the STP band released their debut album, Core, and shot to rock stardom with their single, Plush. The song was described by Weiland as a metaphor for a lost obsessive relationship and would later reach number one on the rock charts. They received another big break when STP was invited to be the opening act for Megadeth. The beginning of the tour was rough for the band, who didn't exactly fit Dave Mustaine's metal outfit, but he liked the band and handpicked them to join the tour. Dean DeLeo in an interview said that Mustaine was incredibly kind and supportive of their music. They soon earned the respect of the Megadeth fans and by the end of the tour they were singing their songs. STP would later earn an MTV Music Award for Best New Artist in 1993 and Plush would earn them a Grammy in 1994. After the tour, Stone Temple Pilots returned to the studio to work on their second album, Purple, and they finished it in less than a month. The album debuted at number one on the Billboard charts, and the radio-friendly Interstate Love Song, written about Weiland's soon-to-be ex-wife Janina, quickly became a big hit. As an artist, all of Wyland's hit songs were inspired by the relationships in his life, but some were more toxic than others. When it comes to love, Scorpio men like Scott Weiland loved emotional entanglements, the messier the better. He was once quoted as saying, I see love like art, as an obsession. Maybe that's an overly romantic view of human existence, but I'm an overly romantic human being. If love is like rock and roll and doesn't consume me 24-7, it's not love. It can be respect appreciation, admiration, wonderment. It can be a world of glory and a lifetime of peace, but I can't call it love. Love burns me and confuses me. Love's a light that can't be extinguished. When you're in love, you've found your soulmate. You think life is going one way, and suddenly it's completely apparent it's not. You have to rethink your whole purpose when in love. During his rock and roll career, he would continue to be obsessed by the women who broke his heart, but inspired him to write some really great love songs. One of his most memorable songs, Sour Girl, was written about his first wife, Janina. He wrote in his memoir, Everyone is convinced the song is about my romance with Mary, my second wife, but everyone is wrong. Sour Girl was written after the collapse of my relationship with Janina. It's about her. She was a sour girl the day she met me. She was a happy girl the day she left me. I was a superman, but looks are deceiving. The roller coaster ride is a lonely one. I pay a ransom note to stop it from steaming. The ransom note, of course, was the fortune it cost him in his divorce with Janina. The Happy State is about his wife finally getting rid of him because he couldn't be faithful. Behind the scenes of his marriage to Janina, he had another romance brewing with his future second wife and the mother of his children, Mary Forsberg. At the age of 16, while she was signed to the Bordeaux Modeling Agency in Los Angeles, She met Scott, a then-struggling rock star, who was assigned to be her driver to take her to modeling gigs. According to her interview with The Therapy House, she began an on-and-off romance with him for eight years, which appears to have overlapped with his marriage to Janina. She said in the interview, "'I wasn't the girl that was looking for my knight in shining armor, and for some reason, I'm sure it was fate, that the minute I saw him,' I knew it would be him. But we did experience a lot of intense moments in our love for each other, and I'm sure that falls under love addiction. There's the true love that is there, but I also feel like there was a real addiction to each other, and that created a major struggle for us. After his divorce, Scott and Mary moved in together, and they later married in 2000, at the height of his fame. They had two beautiful children together. Noah and Lucy, but the love story between the two was a dramatic roller coaster ride. Both struggled with substance abuse problems during their troubled life together. During this period, Scott even got busted for drugs and spent a few months in jail. Mary herself made seven separate visits to rehab centers to overcome her various addictions. Also, their toxic relationship led to several domestic violence incidents involving police. Mary even once torched over $10,000 of his clothes in their driveway. This final incident pushed the couple over the edge and they filed for divorce. Still, through all these ups and downs, they loved each other. Scott's relationship with Mary fit his description of true love, and it was his obsession. They couldn't live with each other but they also couldn't live without each other. That same year was marked with another tragedy, when Scott's younger brother, Michael, died from a disease of the heart muscle, often stemming from drug use. Their sibling relationship was a complicated tale of love and regret. They both struggled with addiction, However, over the years, Weiland wrote in his memoir, he felt guilt over introducing his brother to drugs and alcohol. In an interview with Rolling Stone in 2007, he said his brother's death made him realize the unseen impact that his drug use had on the people around him. He said he regretted putting his family through the pain of wondering if or when he would hurt himself through his addictions and his wife Mary as well, thinking that any time that could happen to the father of her children. He went on to say that after his brother died, he no longer felt unbreakable. Little did he realize that sadly, he too would meet a similar fate less than 10 years later. By 2002, despite reports that Stone Temple Pilots had begun work on a sixth studio album, there was trouble in paradise. Dean and Scott were involved in an altercation after the last show of the band's Fall 2002 tour that resulted in Weiland's firing. The band claimed they had no choice and it was the result of his bad behavior. However, Weiland had another suitor waiting in the wings. In 2002, former Guns N' Roses members, guitarist Slash, bassist Duff McKagan and drummer Matt Sorum, as well as former Wasted Youth guitarist Dave Kushner, were looking for a singer to help them form a new band, Velvet Revolver. The Velvet Revolver band members, all former addicts, knew they were taking a risk by hiring Wyland, but at the same time they loved how talented he was and they thought they could make it work. Duff would write in his memoir, It's So Easy. I found myself dealing with a raging addict and all the drama that it entailed. We figured we were the perfect group of dudes to get Scott through this, but he had been through rehab a dozen times already. After Scott joined the band for a retreat in Washington, involving martial arts training and a healthy diet, he was ready to hit the road. Velvet Revolver's first album, Contraband, debuted at number one on Billboard's album chart and scored big hits with Slither and Fall to Pieces. The band spent a year and a half touring the U.S., Europe, and Asia, and the album would go on to sell 4 million copies. But by March 2008, Weiland found himself disillusioned with Velvet Revolver, and at a crossroads in his life musically. He told Classic Rock a week before he was fired by the band, I guess the problem at the moment is that I have some great things ahead of me, and I'm in a band that I'm not getting along with, who are junkies and fucking tramps, and are trying to pretend they are fucking St. Francis. And there's a lot of baggage that comes with the band, and a lot of displaced anger, you know. When I first joined Velvet Revolver, I already had issues regarding the politics of a rock and roll band. When you're the frontman and the person who writes the majority of the music, all the melodies, all the lyrics, the person who comes up with all the creative ideas, video ideas, concepts for covers, that sort of thing, eventually other band members start looking at you. Weiland had climbed aboard the life raft, that Velvet Revolver offered him, but after being clean and sober for two years, he started drinking again, and it escalated from there. Matt relapsed also and went into treatment. Then Duff relapsed, and then Slash had his own situation. At the time, Weiland was maintaining his problem in a sane way, but all hell broke loose when his brother died. Scott couldn't believe he was in the same situation he had with STP, where he was getting ostracized by people who were in the same situation as him. After Weiland was fired by Velvet Revolver, he decided to give his first love another shot and return to his former band, Stone Temple Pilots. According to Dean DeLeo, steps towards a reunion started with a simple phone call from Weiland's wife. She invited the brothers to play at a private beach party, which led to Scott making amends with his former bandmates. But Weiland remembered the story differently and said in a 2010 radio interview that the reunion was the result of Dean calling and asking if he'd be interested in reuniting the band to headline the Coachella Festival. Either way, the band announced a U.S. tour, and they performed together for the first time since 2002 on April 7th, 2008. The reunion tour kicked off at the Rock on the Range Festival on May 17th. STP's reunion tour was a success, and the band continued to play at concerts throughout 2009 and began recording its sixth studio album. The good times lasted until 2011, until the band hit another roadblock. Egos clashed and old problems began to resurface. Despite the band's claims that their fall tour would be celebrating the 20th anniversary of CORE, it never happened. The DeLeo brothers believed he no longer had the vocal range to perform some of the album's songs, so Weiland decided to do a solo tour instead, which frustrated and pissed off the other bandmates they were clearly not on the same page. The following year, on February 27, 2013, Stone Temple Pilots fired Weiland for a second time due to persistent tardiness and his ongoing struggle with addiction. Both parties filed separate lawsuits on who should control the name of the ban. It was eventually settled out of court with the DeLeo brothers retaining the rights to use the STP name. However, the band struggled to find themselves after Weiland left. For most fans, Scott Weiland was Stone Temple Pilots, and without him, it wasn't the same band. In 2013, the DeLeo brothers told Rolling Stone, It was a very difficult decision to terminate the face of your band. There are many paths to the history of certain bands, and each one is a little different. But it all kind of turns out the same way in the end but it was a very difficult decision to do that. That's as big as it gets, but we really didn't have any choice. For Weiland, he naturally felt betrayed by his former bandmates. Not only did they kick him out of the band a second time, but they didn't want him to perform any of the songs he wrote either. So being the creative genius he was, he went and formed a new band called The Wildabouts. Later that year marked a happier period for Weiland, When he married his third wife, Jamie, he told Rolling Stone magazine, She's incredibly beautiful in every aspect of the word, lovely, smart, passionate, and she loves my kids and I love her son. We're getting married in the spring and our families will be living together. She's the greatest thing that's happened to me in a very long time. Sadly, that happiness would be short-lived.
2: Scott Weiland first began experimenting with drugs early in high school. He spent three months in a psychiatric care unit after his stepdad found marijuana, cocaine, a razor blade, and a mirror in his bedroom drawer. Weiland was devastated and thought his parents were overreacting when they called an ambulance to come pick him up at school and whisk him away to rehab. This chapter in his life was especially traumatic and his addiction would soon become a revolving door of recovery and relapse. Born with the life path number six, he was a romantic soul who was defined by his relationships, positive or negative. People were drawn to him like a magnet, but he was easily manipulated and taken advantage of. Over the years, Wyland battled heroin addiction, but was able to kick the habit multiple times. He wrote in his memoir, Not Dead and Not For Sale, about the first time he experimented with opiates on an early STP tour. The opiate took me to where i had always dreamed of going, Wyland wrote. I can't name the place, but I can say that I was undisturbed and unafraid, a free floating man in a space without demons and doubts. When Wyland sat down in June 2007 with Rolling Stone for two long interviews, he felt hopeful about the future Although he had just lost his brother, Michael, to drug-related heart issues, Scott had kicked his own drug habits after a very dark period, and was enjoying a period of sobriety. When asked about his feelings on rocking in his 40s, he said, Well, I can't imagine doing what Steven Tyler does or Mick Jagger does. I can't imagine being in my 40s and shaking my ass on stage and trying to pretend like I'm something that I'm not anymore. I feel like that part of my rock and roll journey is nearing its end, and it's coming time for the next phase. I'll always make records, because that's what this is about for me. I would love to just be able to be in that place where I could write the kind of music that I want to write, without having to worry about selling 3-4 million records. I'd love to be able to tour without having to worry about filling arenas. It's been 17 years, and it kind of wears on you. However, just eight years later, Wyland was still on the hamster wheel of endless touring just to pay the bills. The last year of his life was a series of turbulent episodes that included a close friend's death, the cancer diagnosis of both his parents, severe financial troubles, marriage difficulties, and his need to self-medicate to help cope with his emotions. At the same time, Wyland was experiencing both paranoia and mania caused by his bipolar disorder. After a March show at Boston's Brighton Music Hall, Weiland hosted a disastrous VIP meet and greet session, heckling and insulting fans, but later apologized publicly on Facebook for acting like a total asshole. Later that month, Billboard magazine wrote that Wyland threatened to twist the nipple of a reporter. Afterward, the journalist wrote to his publicist, I've never felt more disrespected in an interview and am honestly shaken by the experience. His wife, Jamie, concerned about her husband's well-being, had a front-row seat to his bipolar episodes on multiple occasions. In 2011, the couple had become inseparable, but Scott had become stuck in the endless cycle of addiction and would just sit on their couch with a drink, smoking and watching TV. He struggled with mood swings and was often paranoid. He kept the curtains closed at all times and at one point, it became so bad that Jamie decided to apply some tough love and moved out. Eventually she returned and they found a medication that helped stabilize his emotions. But Wyland gained 40 pounds. So he stopped taking the drug and found another medication that leveled him out. For a couple of years, their future looked bright, but Wyland soon fell into another downward spiral of booze and drugs. On Father's Day, Wyland received devastating news that his biological father, Kent Klein, had prostate cancer. This was soon followed by his mother being diagnosed with cancer as well. At a tour stop in San Diego, the singer broke down crying on the street before soundcheck. His wildabout bandmates just held him and did their best to comfort his broken heart. But as they say, the show must go on and Wyland was in desperate straits and needed the cash. After too many trips to rehab, child support payments, drug-fueled binges, and two divorces, the rock star was broke. The last time Jamie saw Scott alive, they spent a romantic Thanksgiving Day dinner at an Italian restaurant in New York. The night before, on November 25th, he played the Gramercy Theater with his band. She would later tell Billboard Magazine I think maybe I knew I was never going to see him again. We couldn't get enough of each other. It was very powerful. Unfortunately, the band had an odd habit that would later prove deadly for Weiland. The one custom they always observed was, if Scott's asleep, we leave him alone. So when the band headed out to go shopping for Christmas presents, they left him behind in the tour bus as always. It would be a mistake they would later regret. In Los Angeles that afternoon, Jamie woke up to a text that read, I'm so in love with my beautiful wife. She called and texted Weiland's phone, but got no response. She immediately had a weird feeling and contacted Aaron Moeller, the band's tour manager, to go check on Weiland. Moeller entered the tour bus and found Weiland lying on his left side in a fetal position. His hands were by his head and his eyes were half closed. He shook his leg but soon realized his shoulders were stiff. The band manager called the drummer Joey Castillo, who ran to the tour bus. They looked for a pulse on Wyland's neck, but couldn't find one and called 911. They told the dispatcher that Scott wasn't breathing and thought he was dead. Here's the 911 call from that fateful night. 535, Coast 3 in Bloomington. 2221, Killebrew Drive. In the parking lot
1: on a possible cardiac arrest. Capturing in suites, 2221 Kilobo Drive. Got a tour bus in the parking lot. They got a possible DOA, DOA, one stop reading. 4-3-5. start also.
2: 6-3. 6-3, I check the area. Incompletely tires. 10-4, Parksley.
1: 4-9 Riders. 10-4, I'm the Four, eight, right? Four, nine, right? a line, just trying to start CPR instructions,
2: but i not going so long. 4-9 DOA. 50. 525. We're on scene. It'll 1021. I understand. Uh, Are officers there yet? Affirmative. Copy that. 2028. Police and paramedics arrived within minutes and pronounced Scott Weiland, at the age of 48, dead.
1: After Scott Weiland was pronounced dead at the scene, 15 police officers swarmed the tour bus to search for drugs. A canine unit sniffed out a bag of cocaine in Weiland's room and another under the mattress of his bassist, Tommy Black. Later that night, Tommy Black was arrested and booked on possession of a controlled substance. But the following day, the Bloomington police chief released Black and made the following statement. The narcotics were found in a bunk, and obviously with several people residing on a bus, a number of people could have potentially possessed those narcotics. So at the end of the day, we decided not to pursue charges against him. When the STP bandmates received the tragic news that Scott was dead, they were devastated. Dean DeLeo told Rolling Stone, It was a feeling I had never experienced. My heart dropped. It felt like a part of me fell out. Stone Temple Pilots crafted a letter thanking him for his talent, but also acknowledging his demons. Let us start by saying thank you for sharing your life with us. Together we crafted a legacy of music that has given so many people happiness and great memories. With deep sorrow for you and your family, we are saddened to see you go. The memories are many and they run deep for us. We know amidst the good and the bad you struggled, time and time again. It's what made you who you were. Part of the gift was part of your curse. And ex-wife Mary and the mother of his two children had a different response. She wrote a bittersweet letter that was posted via Rolling Stone, stating fans should not glorify his tragic death. This is an excerpt from what she wrote. December 3rd, 2015 is not the day Scott Wyland died. It is the official day the public will use to mourn him and it was the last day he could be propped up in front of a microphone for the financial benefit or enjoyment of others. The outpouring of condolences and prayers offered to our children Noah and Lucy has been overwhelming, appreciated, and even comforting. But the truth is, like so many other kids, they lost their father years ago. What they truly lost on December 3rd was hope. She went on to speak of the broken relationship Weiland had with his children and claimed she had made efforts to mend the damage. During the final years of his life, she recalls few interactions between him and the kids, but questions if those years of separation was somehow a parting gift to soften the blow of his upcoming death. However, when Wyland was alive, he would bitterly complain to friends and family She would never let him see his kids because of his addiction issues. Her letter went on to state that Scott would call her at night crying about his inability to separate himself from negative people and bad choices. She spoke of how angry and sad they were about losing him, but said their family were most devastated by the fact he chose to give up. Many fans disagreed with her letter and expressed their disdain for his ex-wife. One fan accused her of lying and being motivated by money to pen the letter. Saddened by the fact that so many people took advantage of the rock star instead of trying to help him. A funeral was held at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery, a place where Jamie and Scott used to watch movies frequently. STP's three surviving bandmates were there, but his ex-wife Mary and his two children were not present and held a private memorial service instead. Weiland wrote some sage advice in his memoir about addiction. He said, No one turns you into a drug addict or drunk. The blame game is pointless and harmful. I don't believe in pointing fingers. We do what we do and are responsible for our own actions. I don't believe we are victimized by circumstance. There are, however, stories to be told. The story does not begin with us, but rather our parents, and parents' parents. The story goes back further than we know or can even imagine. Our stories are linked together because we share this space on the planet. We influence one another, whether we like it or not. Every time I try to catch up to my life, something stops me. Different people making claims on my life. Old friends telling me new friends aren't real friends. All my friends are trying to convince me I can't live without them. It appears that Weiland was quite aware of his personal demons and the slippery slope of addiction. Drugs are powerful, but they're easily misused and always cover the symptoms of your emotional pain rather than addressing the core. Some make it out alive, but as we all know, many do not. After his death, his ex-wife Mary was named executor of his estate. He wrote his last will in 2007 and never updated it after he married his third wife Jamie. It's believed his entire estate was left to his children. However, Jamie would later make a claim against the estate, saying that she was owed $64,406. This was based on her prenup agreement, which stated that Wyland would put 2K into a separate account each month. They were married, with a provision that the amount would increase by 7% annually. But she said Scott had only made two deposits by the time he died in December 2015. TMZ noted that the prenup was cut and dried, stating what was Weiland's before the marriage remained his and vice versa. In addition, the agreement waived Jamie's right to spousal support. A judge later ruled against Jamie in court, and she received no settlement from the estate. Sadly, she was forced to auction off some of Weiland's personal items and gifts he had given her during the time they were married, due to financial difficulties. For Wylan's former STP bandmates, the memories are bittersweet. Dean DeLeo told Loudwire in an interview how losing Wylan was like a 14-year suicide due to his addictions. He said Scott was an incredibly gifted and talented human being. I'll fucking say this loud and proud. He was one of the best lyricists of our time. His lyrics and his melodies and his delivery... He was the fucking best man. It was an honor to be on stage with that cat, and it was an amazing place to be there with him while writing a song. I miss that guy. I miss the guy he was. I've missed him for about 15 years. For his wife, Jamie, she lost her soulmate. On social media, she posted a sweet note for him on his birthday saying, Another birthday, That you aren't here for I wonder if wherever you are you can see all of us that miss you so much and if you're surrounded by other loved ones that have moved on to the other side and if somehow you at least have a triple berry cake your favorite most of all I hope you feel the incredible love that exists for you and always will
0: Scott Weiland was once quoted as saying, Music is the universal language. Of course points are made which make you think about things, but ultimately it makes you feel. And that's why people remember more songs that have meant something during their life than films. Music starts to define periods in your life, and that's the beauty of it. Over the years, many of his most famous songs are bitter breakup tunes or confessional tales of substance abuse. Rolling Stone would write in his memoir, Not Dead and Not For Sale, how he revealed his true feelings about velvet revolver's debut album i liked our first record but can't call it the music of my soul he wrote there was a certain commercial calculation behind it we wanted hits they got one in Fall to pieces which started as a riff that slash wrote at the very end of his time in guns N' roses wyland turned it into a finished song with help from bassist duff mcguggan it's about coming to terms with or not coming to terms with my heroin addiction, he said. It was also about my relationship with Mary and how it was falling apart. A brilliant but troubled soul whose memory lives on in his words and music.
1: Our show notes, along with links to the news articles and interviews we used in researching and writing this episode, are available on our website at deathbymisadventure.co.uk. The show's hosts included the talented Eduardo Fahey in London, England, Tom Dre in Long Beach, California, and myself, I'm JC Nova, also based in LBC. This podcast was recorded at Skywave Studios in Hollywood by sound engineer Edwin Arzu and produced by Cosmic Media. A special thanks to Christopher Lang, our audio producer in Tucson, Arizona, who helps bring each episode to life. Kudos to Paulina of Upper Planet. She's responsible for the design of our super cool website. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Death by Misadventure Podcast. This has been Death by Misadventure. Thanks for listening.